Great to be with everybody. Uh, welcome back to Bread for the Journey. We covered a lot of ground uh, this reading. We're finishing up the book of Judges. We're blowing through the book of Ruth, and we're diving into the book of 1 Samuel. And so it's a lot of ground to cover. So I'm going to rapid fire, just bang through some points that were I felt the Holy Spirit was stressing to me. And then we're going to have a time of just Q&A discussion and and, and some thoughts that we can rally around. So we read through basically Judges 16 is the end of Samson, and we're going to finish in 1 Samuel 12, which is uh, the, really the beginning of King Saul's reign. And so we cover a, a, a lot of ground. In Judges, the main point that I want to hit is, uh, you know, Samson's story ends, and we talked a little bit about it last week. He uh, defeats the Philistines. God uses him in one final time after he falls to deliver a, a big blow to the Philistines at, uh, as a judge. And then the story shifts into 17, 18, and 19, stories of idolatry, really, in Israel's history. And it says in each one of these passages, 17, 18, 19, and then in chapter 21 as well, the phrase, Israel had no king. It finishes uh, in, in chapter 21, verse 25, with adding the phrase, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's also repeated in, in 17, verse 6. So it paints this idea of a, of a void of leadership in Israel at the time. There's no leadership. Everyone's doing what they think is right. Um, we have Micah in chapter 17 is fashioning idols. Israel's falling into idols. He installs a priest uh, against all the priestly protocols. Dan comes and steals his idols, takes the priest, installs that priest as their priest, as a tribe. They wipe out of town. And as we go through, it's just the, the story gets worse and worse. And Judges ends with a horrific story of this group that is that basically a, a Levite and his concubine. The concubine gets horribly sexually abused. She's murdered. There's war against Benjamin. Uh, Israel, the tribes come out and they almost wipe out an entire tribe uh, because of this violation. And... So Judges is just ending in a horrific manner as a book. Uh, but the point that I felt the Lord was stressing was, again, coming back to what's repeated over and over again. In these days, Israel had no king, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And this really sets us up for 1 Samuel, but we'll get to 1 Samuel in a moment. We have a very important book in the Bible coming, and Judges and Ruth are actually concurrent books. They're happening at the same time because Ruth chapter one, verse one says, at the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. And we have the story of Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. They're sojourning, sojourning in the land of Moab. And uh, Ru uh, Naomi's sons have married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And we have, again, a tragic story here of Elimelech and the two sons dying, and so Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law. Um, what I want to point out in the beginning of Ruth, though, is, again, it's at the time of the judges, there is no king, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and so you have this family who is sojourning in an, in an area that's not the promised land. I think it's important for us to kind of put context here, um, and the question has to be asked, why, why is Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons traveling to a Gentile land, and why are these men uh, against the, the ordinances of God marrying uh, foreign women? Uh, and they 
pay a price for that. Uh, in fact, Naomi is hurting so bad. She says God has really given her a pretty bitter drink to, to swallow. So she changes her name, says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And so she's hurting after losing her husband, losing her sons. There's no offspring. Uh, Orpah goes back to the Moabite people. But Ruth bucks all convention. And in, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we begin to have an understanding that God's doing something here, even in the midst of this broken story, even in the midst of Israel having no king. His plan is still working its way through all of the mess of humanity in this beautiful story of Ruth. And she says uh, this amazing statement to her mother-in-law, where she could have gone back and found another husband and gone on with her life in her homeland. She says, no, I'm gonna, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you live, I'm going to live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And so she binds herself in covenantal loyalty to Naomi. And I think this is, why is the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Um, I want to make a couple points because um, there's a lot going on in this story. Um, I'm not going to spend the whole time talking about Ruth, but I just want to hit a couple of key points. For example, the book of Ruth is read every year. This is read by Jews all over the world during the feast of Shavuot. So Shavuot uh, is a, a spring harvest festival. In fact, it's Pentecost. That's what we call it in the church. We call Pentecost what's really Shavuot. So in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit's poured out in Pentecost and 3,000 Jews are saved, they are in Jerusalem celebrating Shavuot. And so they're there because Shavuot is one of the three pilgrim festivals, uh, according to the law, that men had to appear before God in Jerusalem. And so these Jews from all over the ancient world had come to celebrate Shavuot. And you might even recall when Jesus is saying it's Shavuot, the reason we call it Pentecost, Pentecost is, the word penta is 50. And so it's 50 days after Passover is where we get the phrase Pentecost. And Shavuot is exactly 50 days after Passover. So uh, it's precise timing of the Lord. That's my point. But this is the time in the season. The spring harvest is when Ruth is read. And it's read for a few different reasons. Number one, it's read because they're saying that Ruth actually takes place during Shavuot in Jewish tradition. Number two, there's a harvest time. Obviously, she's in the fields gleaning Boaz in the story where she meets her husband and, and everything unfolds, takes place in Boaz's fields of harvest. And then the final reason that the Jews say they read, they read the book of Ruth during Shavuot is because the book of Ruth ends with King David's genealogy, and it's said that he died uh, on Shavuot. Is, is, I guess Jewish tradition is when King David passed away. I don't, we don't know if that's true or not, but that's the tradition. But I want to submit a fourth reason why I think the book of Ruth is read on Shavuot. And it has to do with Jew and Gentile. And Krista alluded to it earlier that God is writing in Gentiles into the story. In fact, uh, as we find out in, in chapter four, at the end of the story, Boaz's mom is Rahab. Rahab, after Jericho, she marries Salmon, Salmon, who's a leader in the tribe of Judah. And so Boaz, or I'm sorry, Salmon and Rahab get married. Boaz is their son. Now, and Boaz is quite a bit older than Ruth when this happens. And so 
when they uh, are there. This is the lineage through which God is working through generations to bring about the birth of Obed, who is, at the end of the story, this bouncing baby boy on the, on the lap of Naomi that is Ruth and Boaz's child is David's grandpa. And so we have in the midst of the time where there are no kings, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, we're back to the story that God's been telling all along, which is I'm bringing forth the promised seed, the seed of the woman who's going to undo the works of darkness. And even in the midst of all of the confusion and chaos around it, God is still weaving his tapestry and he's brought this example from the Gentile nations, the Moabites of all people, this covenantally faithful woman who will bind her heart to the Jewish people um, and remain loyal. She gets written in as King David's uh, grandma, which is amazing uh, testimony to us. But why is, it, why is that relevant for Shavuot? Why, is, why did I say that, that I think there's a fourth reason why this book is being read on the, the spring festival? And that is during Shavuot, there's a what's called a wave offering that's made by the priests. And you can read about it. And um, they will wave two loaves of bread in the temple. And these two loaves of bread, they're, they're leavened. They're actually not unleavened. So if you remember in Passover, unleavened bread represents sinlessness. Leavened bread represents sin. So they're, they're actually waving a grave offering, thanking God for the harvest. And you got to think Shavuot is the, is the time when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Jerusalem. And you might think about what Peter says, you know, my, my spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. And Jesus' words about you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that the vision of the gospel is going to go from just an Israel-centric story to now, all the nations are going to be grafted in. And so I think this wave offering, the Jew and the Gentile together before God at the harvest in the spring, and that's why I think Ruth is being read, is because Ruth is a story of Gentile faithfulness and God weaving the Gentiles into his covenantal story. Ruth is a picture of the one new man um, and in covenant together and out of that covenant coming life and purpose. Obviously, uh, you know, Jesus himself is tied to this lineage. And so Ruth is really an amazing book. Um, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time there because we can come back during the, during the question time. But I just wanted to lay out some of those thoughts as we look at the at the story of Ruth, how her binding her heart to uh, Naomi results in this amazing weaving in, and how even with uh, with Rahab being in the story, you can see God's hand in preparing Boaz to have a compassionate nature and disposition towards a foreign woman. You know, his own mother being you know Rahab being the foreigner from Jericho, and how that prepared him to love and receive Ruth, who God was sending to him uh, at the appointed time. We've closed out the book of Judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There is no king. We have the story. Even in the midst of that, Ruth, God is preparing to continue on the covenantal story through bloodlines and through preparation and through uh, him in the details and in the nitty gritty, preparing men and women to play their part, to bring about the birth of Jesus and through the, his ancestor, David. And then we come to 1 Samuel. And so we la we're launching into a new uh, time period in Israel's history as we move into the time of the kings 
And that starts with the amazing story of uh, Samuel, but we really, it really starts with the story of Hannah, the barren mother. And, you know, God will come back to this type of a story uh, many times where we've, we've seen it with Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was unable to have a child. She cries out, God brings about life through the barren woman uh, as evidence that he is indeed providing a miraculous child. Uh, Rachel cries out, is another example, a barren woman who cries out for children and God hears her prayer and brings about the birth of a child. Jesus is obviously the greatest example of uh, a miraculous birth. Samson is another example where God comes and says to the mother ahead of time, hey, there's, this is going to be a special child. John the Baptist and Elizabeth, and you know she's beyond the age of bearing children, but she, she bears John the Baptist. So this, this several key, when God's about to bring forth a prophet of note, usually it's connected to a, to a barren woman. And so here we have the story of Hannah crying out, I want to have a child, I'm barren, she's at the temple. Uh, God gives her Samuel, she gives Samuel back to the Lord, and he, he's contrasted with as a, a loyal priest, he grows up in the temple, he's contrasted with being holy and being, being righteous with Eli and Hophni and his son Phinehas, who are corrupt, and actually God ends up ripping the priesthood away from these this family who are abusing and lightly esteeming God's sacrifices. And and Samuel is kind of held up as uh, a prophet of the Lord. He judges Israel. He's he's the last judge of Israel. He judges Israel from several locations in the nation. And he is serving the Lord. He's ministering powerfully in the prophetic. Uh, and Israel starts to cry out for a king. And we have a transition point in the story where even though God warns Samuel and tells Samuel, you're going to have to warn the people of Israel um, what's going to happen if, if they have a king. And Israel's taking their cues from the nations around them. Other nations have kings. We want one too. Um, and the Lord actually says a heartbreaking phrase to Samuel. He says, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I, I'm their king and they don't, they don't want, my, they don't want me, to, me to be the king anymore. They want a man. And give them what they're asking for. And so we have a, a transition point. Samuel hands over the reins to Saul. We have Saul's anointing, his calling as a, as a king. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody in the land. Handsome man, but he's not looking to be the king. How he's found, God really sets up all these prophetic circumstances to confirm he is indeed the one that God has his eye on to be the king. But we see a very interesting phrase. Uh, I believe it's in chapter 11, where they, Samuel calls the whole nation together to recognize that Saul's been anointed and they can't find him. He's disappeared. Where is where's Saul? And the Lord has to tell Samuel he's hiding among the baggage, which is just a, a fascinating little note there as we see inside of Saul um, a hesitancy and insecurity, a fear of man, maybe. We don't, we don't know all that's there right there, but but that's included in the Bible, I think, at the very beginning of his story, because as we follow Saul's arc as the first king of Israel, we're going to see some heartbreaking uh, elements to his tale, what happens to him. But here we have, in seed form, a character issue that is going to, unfortunately, be an Achilles heel for Saul. As we head into chapter uh, 11 and 12 and his story, as we finish this week's reading, ends really in a positive stance, uh, the people of Israel being oppressed by the Ammonites, King Nahash. Saul has not yet been received as fully as king. He has some detractors, 
some people who are saying, we don't want him as king. Who does he think he is? But God sets up a situation where uh, through Saul's leadership, it says the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Saul and he got angry and he butchers these oxen and he sends them out to all of Israel and says, this is what I'm going to do to you if you don't come out and fight with me and rescue your countrymen. And so the fear of the Lord kind of grips the nation of Israel. Everybody rallies. They come, 300,000 Israelites come out uh, uh, as troops with Saul, and he gets some strategic wisdom, powerful victory. Uh, They rescue their countrymen. They defeat the the Ammonites, Nahash. And Saul, this week's reading ends with Saul kind of installed uh, as the king. And so God sets up a scenario which is going to affirm and, you know, kind of show the nation of Israel that he's with this king. And so that's how our reading ended this week. And so I know we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, there's a lot going on, lots of themes to discuss. I want to transition just to some questions for us so that we can begin our discussion and our Q&A time. There's so many characters, so many little intricacies we could focus on. Um, and I just would love to hear from everybody, the, the community of faith that's with us on Bread for the Journey. What characters stood out to you in your reading? Um, was it Samson? Is it Ruth? Is it Boaz? Is it Saul? Is it Samuel? Is it Hannah? Uh, is it Naomi? There's so many amazing uh, little characters that we've covered over our reading this week. I'm just curious if there were specific characters that stood out to you as you read these 21, 22 chapters this week. Well, I'm always happy to go first. So I thank everyone for just, uh, you know, giving me that opportunity to do so. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Amen. There were so many that stood out, but I will go ahead and share. Um, In particularly, for me, it's Hannah. And she stood out to me is because, you know, it doesn't tell us how many years she was buried. We know that it was more than a day, a week, or a second. That's what I know. Let me speak for me. I know that it was because her husband has married another woman, and she has conceived several, quite a few children. So that tells me, based on the position that she was in, she was the senior wife and therefore treated with the most respect. And in that time frame, it was customary because children were to help with the farming, with the produce, and all of that. because she could not produce children, he married someone else, so on and so forth. But he loved her, and even to the point where he said, you know, aren't I more valuable to you than 10 sons? You know, I, I, I he stood out to me because I said, okay, this brother don't get it, so we'll have to pray for him. Amen. Then the next thing is understanding that with all that she had been through, the torment, because that wasn't the first time she had been tormented by Paniah. It had gone on year after year after year. But what I love is that the Lord chose a time to not just meet her need, but the need of a nation because the word of God had grown scarce and there was no vision. And so God sees everything, puts her into this position where she makes this agreement. She makes a vow. And it seems like, you know, we've been hearing more about vow, 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 vow. But she makes a vow. And in making the vow, she says, if you give me a man child, amen. And she was not being sexist. She understood that a man child brought validity. And so bring, give me a man child, but I'm going to give him back to you. What I love about her is that she gave her word to God. 
and she did not go back on her word. I can only imagine that once she gave birth and she's nursing this child, uh, knowing that she's loving him more and more every day and God has not promised her, give me this one and I'm gonna give you some more. No, she said, I will keep my word to God. She promised him when he was able and at the age to be weaned, she did exactly what she was said she was going to do. Why I'm impressed by her, she was a woman of her word. She committed herself to God and she stood by it, not looking at what she might lose or what if I don't have any other children? That was not her thought. That was not the point. The point is I promised him that God, as soon as he's able to be weaned, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I see a woman of strength. I see a woman of, in, uh, of courage, integrity, and I see a woman who loved God and God honored her with even more children. So I appreciate Hannah in more ways than I can express. Thanks. Amen. I, I kind of feel the same along those lines with you, Pastor Sylvia. One of the things that stood out to me that I thought was so precious is where it talks about how she would make him the, the little robe. He was just a toddler, you know, and she's making him a little robe. Could you imagine the love that went into that? And then she would carry it up to the temple. It's precious. But it is, it is really impressive. I agree with you that she kept her word. Because how hard would that have been for her to do? You know, your new, your new baby, the baby that she longed for in her heart. And she knew, though, that's, again, just another reminder of how poor, important it is um, that we keep our vows. We keep our word to God and, and really to, to all. You know, the Bible tells us our vows bind us. You know, the Bible talks about co-laboring with the Lord. And I think Hannah's pain. You know, she wants a child, but she's really an intercessor. God's birthing something for the people of Israel, and he's birthing it through the pain of a mother. And who's he's sharing his pain with a human being. And we can see this prophetic pattern happen in other places, too. For example, when we get to the book of Hosea, God feels like a, a husband who's been cheated on by a wife has committed adultery and is a prostitute. And so he has Hosea actually experience that by marrying a prostitute. So God is feeling something and he shares that feeling and that experience with a human being and they actually intercede for the nation. And I think Hannah, and it's not exactly the same, but it's a similar pattern. Uh, she's crying out because the there is a void of leadership in Israel. And, and there isn't a, a man of God. There's no leadership. There's no one leading this people. Everyone's doing what's right. The priesthood is corrupt. And I think God has her in a place of crying out of sorrow for a, a godly person to come on the scene and help deliver Israel and help lead Israel. And so I, I think there's this shared burden that she has with God. She's co-laboring with the God of Israel for the sake of Israel. And so I think that's the vow. That's where she's like, uh, you know, my pain is your pain. If you, if you, if you bring me this child, I'm going to dedicate this child back to you for your purpose. And of course, God uses Samuel in some amazing ways. But I think sometimes deep intercession comes out of a place of deep brokenness in us as a people. We're broken over something that God's heart is broken for. And out of that shared pain, 
God wants to birth something through us sometimes as sons and daughters uh, that brings about some change on the earth. So I just think Hannah's a great example of an intercessor in that way. I 100% agree because that is the essence of travailing prayer. And what Hannah is doing in the temple is uh, desperation causes you to travail. And travail comes out of a place of pain and sorrow. And it goes beyond individual into connecting with heaven's sorrow and seven, heaven's pain. And then the Holy Spirit comes and travails through you. You simply become a vessel that he is able to use. So he connects your pain to his pain and then pours it out through that vessel. And so when we want to know about desperation, when we want to know about what does it mean to travail in prayer, deep, deep intercession, Hannah is one of those that you can use and mark what God does and how he does it to answer not just her desire, but the, his own very heart's desire was birthed out through her travailing and God answered it. Then the other thing that I want to note about Hannah, though we have not gotten there, well, is that when Hannah's response through her song unto the Lord, you know, where she's exalting the name of the Lord and speaking of his goodness and all of that, if we fast forward to the New Testament, the book of Luke, that is the same response to Mary. Mary right. had as well. So it shows us that Hannah understood, like Mary, what a phenomenal position God had placed her in and that God had chosen to use her for something far greater than she could even know she was asking for. She is declaring that he is the God that does ex exceedingly and abundantly above anything we could ask or think. He is the God that can take a little old me and do something great for his nation, for his kingdom, and for the good of all. Amen. So good, Sylvia. And you know, you think about the story could have ended, you know, barren woman, really desperate for a baby. God gives her a baby and they have a normal life and they're all happy. It's a good story, but it's a really small story. This story, even though it requires her to sacrifice and give away her son back to God, it's a much bigger story. It blesses so many more people because of who Samuel is and how he influences an entire nation um, as, you know, God's man to be really a bridge between the time of the judges to the time of the kings, uh, Samuel really prepares the nation of Israel in some really specific, strategic, and powerful ways for what God was going to be doing in the next uh, era as he works with his people. But there's Hannah, you know, and I just want to say this too before we move on from Hannah. You know, when you're an intercessor and you're feeling a burden, don't expect to be understood by the religious people around you. You know, Eli is angry at her, thinks she's actually drunk, and she's pouring out her heart. She's, you know, she's speaking so fervently that he thinks she's, she's high. And he doesn't understand what's going on in the depths of her heart. And so sometimes when we're really, our heart's broken and we're moving by the impulse of the Holy Spirit, people aren't going to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And, uh, and that's okay. You know, we've got to go with God and let his let his passion, let, his, let him help break our hearts for what's breaking his. 
And we pour out our hearts like water to the Lord and let him deal with the results. And in Hannah's case, uh, what an, an amazing story of what God did through her, her, her desperate cries and how that reflected his desperate cries for the people of Israel to have uh, an intercessor, a deliverer come on the scene. That just confirmed uh, to any and everyone that when you come and enter into this kind of intercession, people are not going to understand. They're not. Mm -mm. And you need to know that. And as Jed said, just go with God. They are not. You know, uh, no matter how spiritually they may be until you have been used or are being used by God in that way, they don't get it. And you do look strange. You sound strange. But praise be to God, because the things of God are foolishness to man. Amen. But God knows exactly what he's doing. And he's looking for someone that is willing to be used by him radically. Uh, in such a way to bring forth the very heart and the burden of God. God's heart is broken. And when we connect our hearts to God, and I'm talking about intercession, that is beyond our uh, little corn prayers. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. If that's what you're praying, that's fine. But understand there is a deeper depth that God is trying to take each of us that are willing. When we look at Hannah, look at the rewards of surrendering, because that's what she represents, is a surrendered life to God. Now, did she get there overnight? No. But through the course of years and time, she finally got to that place. Kind of reminds me of Jesus in the garden. He had to get to that place of total surrender. That so no matter what happened, no matter how strange they thought he was or how they mocked him and any of that stuff, he never wavered in his surrender to God. Hannah never wavered. And her surrender was such that her husband, who based on the laws of God, could have made null and void her vow. He did not. And so therefore the vow stood and she stayed surrendered unto God and look at the outcome, the end result. I believe what God wants us to see through the book of Judges, through the book of Ruth, and even into Samuel is surrender life unto God as compared to unsurrender where everyone is doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes because they have no king. Um, in light of all that's being said, just as confirmation from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6, it says, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. And, you know, to me, I feel that it, it confirms a much of what's being said about when we are being led by the spirit, walking in the spirit. Sometimes it is that you are, you know, a different person in the spirit, you know, because we see that with uh, before when um, Saul didn't have the spirit on him, he was hiding, you know, but he became a courageous man to be able to lead the lead the group because the spirit enabled him. And we have the spirit of God living within us that's enabling us to be different, you know, to really and truly be able to be about the father's business, you know, and when we're when he puts our heart on something, it is going to look different. Because the world opposes 
you know, everything that the Lord is trying to do and everything about his kingdom. I mean, it's all in opposition, but we are called to be these ambassadors. So I think that it's just an important part of our discussion tonight, just in talking about it's okay to look different. We should, you know, sometimes we try so hard to fit in. There's, there's a cliche saying that says you were born to stand out, but we really were. We are supposed to be set apart and different. And I think another message there, Hannah, is like, you can never outgive God. She gave, she didn't have any children. She honored the Lord with Samuel and the Lord gave, I think five, was there five other children after that? And so, you know, the generosity of God and he's putting his burden in her heart. She's loyal to the Lord and willing to be used as a servant of the Lord. And the Lord repays, you know, her for her sacrifice. And, you know, it's what Jesus says too. you know, when his disciples say, well, we've left homes and mothers and fathers to follow you. What are we getting? He says, well, you'll get in this life and in the life to come a hundredfold uh, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, homes with persecutions uh, is included in that. But, you know, you can't outgive God when he puts, when that spirit, like Chris is saying, comes upon you and he, he's calling you into that place of co-laboring, uh, that surrender is so key. And God's going to take those five loaves and that two fish, and he's going to multiply it out and be a blessing beyond whatever, whatever you thought that it was going to be. It's bigger than you. It's not about you. It's about God and it's about his glory, but he'll pour back into you just like he did with Hannah. Um, because he's not, he's not, uh, insensitive or, or callous towards her pain. He loves Hannah. And so he's ministering to Hannah in the midst of all this too. And so I just think it's a beautiful picture of a servant walking with God and feeling the pain, real pain of a burden, real desperation, real heartache, uh, real tears and God meeting with her and doing a great work, not just for her, but for the whole nation. It's a beautiful story. It is an example of a surrendered life. And that's what God wants us to see. And he is, I believe, beckoning all of us to live such a life because you can't outgive God and you cannot even begin to even fathom the life that God desires for each of us because he loves us. I was going to say Naomi is, is, um, close to that she it's a different kind of um sacrifice but she was very obedient in following her husband out of bethlehem and um going to a land where where her sons did intermarry and yet she was faithful even after her her husband died and her two sons died and when she decided to come back to um Israel, she um, she was burdened because, of course, she had no she had no heirs, and she didn't see herself as being blessed. But she um, saw the blessing in her in her daughter-in-law, and tutored her, I guess, when it came to her interaction with Boaz. And so she did lead her into a position of of the ability to be a grandmother. And she didn't have that in her mind when she was um, just trying to make sure that um, Ruth was taken care of. She didn't really know how much that would benefit her, but um, she did a great job of being a steadfast and, and showing that um, her perseverance 
and her dedication to the Lord brought her back to the land and gave her a reward that was beyond what she could imagine. Amen. Yeah, Naomi's in one sense, you know, we talk about God being the, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, but he's also the God of the omega alpha. Uh, one thing ends and then something new begins. And I think Naomi's this picture of some things have ended tragically and in, in a lot of pain, but that's not the end of the story. And God's moving and she clings on, even though her faith might be sometimes feel like it's just uh, the, seed, the, the, the size of a mustard seed, right? Uh, but that's all that God needs. And, and he's, he's keeping her and he's got a plan and he's bringing a new beginning for her. And I love that her joy, you know, you just see her, uh, her heart rejoicing in the birth of, of Obed and, and what that means for her family. And it's like her joy has been restored. And I love that, uh, how God is out of a really painful ending. God, through his uh, kindness and generosity, brings a new beginning. Um, what I would really like to share is uh, one thing that I learned today about Ruth. Um, and Pastor Jed said that she had this uh, a loyalty to the covenant that she made with Naomi. And one thing I've always wanted to do in my life is, fi is to find out what moves God. And I've seen this uh, through this study. Uh, that uh, There are certain character traits that move God. When God saw in Abraham what God himself was willing to do for the entire world, he was greatly moved by that. Abraham was willing to give his only son uh, um, uh, to God when God asked him. And that is something that God himself was willing to do. Um, in Ruth, I saw something. I saw a, a woman who gave herself totally to Naomi. Uh, she said, where you would live, I would live. Where you'd go, I'd go. Where you die, I'd die. Your God will be my God. That is a character trait that I, I see that moves God deeply because that is what God wants from us. A total surrender as it has, as it has been mentioned earlier today, a total surrender where your very being, every part of you is dedicated to God, where whatever God wants you to do, you'll do. Wherever he wants you to go, you do. And you are prepared to die for him. And when he sees that character trait in, in any human being, I believe it greatly moves God. So I, I see this a lot in, in Naomi, in Ruth, uh, when she makes that uh, 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 undivided covenant with, and she didn't change at all. And so as a result, God sends them a redeemer because I remember that when they moved back to their hometown, they didn't have it too well. You know, they, she had to go to the farm and pick uh, the scraps from, from the farm uh, after Boaz's workers you know, would, would come and, and harvest from the farm. She would have to go and, and try to pick the scraps from the farm to survive off of that, as it was said in, as it was um, said in, 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 in the Mosaic laws. So you see that they had it hard, but that character trait of devotion, undivided devotion was greatly pleasing to God. And I believe that that's one of the things that moved God to send them a redeemer in Boaz. Amen. And I think that's um, that's something we all, that's a character we should all ascribe to have, a deep loyalty to God where we are willing to do any and everything for God, and he will send us our redeemer. And like Sister Christie, uh, Pastor Christie said, 
that yes, we may go through afflictions like she did. They were going through some tough time, but God will deliver them from deliver us from them all, just like she did for for Ruth. So uh, the big thing I take from from Ruth, learning from her today, uh, is that deep devotion, be being willing to give yourself wholly to God, for Him to do any and everything through you and. Throughout everything, he's going to sustain you and deliver you from every problem you might have in the future. Amen. That's what I learned. I have three things that I would like to talk about. One is a question. So uh, Ruth and um, Rahab were Gentiles. They were married and we know that they they are in the lineage of King David and of course of Jesus. And in Deuteronomy around seven, the Lord says, do not marry Gentiles. So my question is, why then did the Lord allow uh, Ruth and Rahab to be married into the Israelites' families, yet he had commanded them not to marry them? So that's my question. Uh, About Eli and his sons, we read about the wickedness of Eli's sons and we see that at the end of it all, they were wiped out. Eli's family was wiped out. And so I relate this with the way we serve God today and how we walk. Yes, it goes to all of us, but then I'm looking at it from an angle of, of the church where we are serving God we have been entrusted with this ministry, the ministry that uh, we are involved in. How do we serve God? Um, are we doing it according to the way he wants it to be done? Because Eli was warned. And I'm amazed that Samuel was in the same house, was, at, was under the leadership of Eli, but then he turned out good. Yet the sons of Eli did not turn out good. So what was happening there? Was Samuel too young that he understood what Eli was teaching? Was Eli a wrong, a bad father that he did not uh, educate his or teach his children what was supposed to be done? And when he was warned, could he have done something to to change what the Lord has had spoken? Because the Lord had said he's going to wipe out Eli's family. Could Eli have stood and prayed and, I don't know, done something about it? The third one about Ruth's uh, attachment to, to Naomi. I am amazed at her commitment, at her... But then we, we also read that Naomi had gone to Moab because of the famine. So it's also that disobedience that Israelites had walked in that led to this. Because we read in Deuteronomy and all the books before that if they had continued to walk faithfully before the Lord, they were not going to go under through any, any, any hunger, any, po- any poverty, any drought. They were going to have plenty. So we see that because of the disobedience down the road, in Judges and as you start First Samuel, you see that that was the reason why the, the, the famine was there. So we see this 
disobedience leading Naomi to go to Moab and uh, and and then she loses her children so i ask myself was she told to go to Moab at that time so these are the questions that run in my mind what why how do we follow the lord's commands how do we walk according to what god has called us to walk in because Naomi going to with her husband to the Moabite land she wasn't meant to be there i think that this is what i think she wasn't meant to be there she was supposed to be in israel so well those are my few contributions yeah that's i appreciate that rachel i mentioned it at the start too i had the same thought as you did in reading uh you know there's a famine in the land and during the time of the judges this family goes to moab um it doesn't say that god led them there it doesn't say didn't um, so I think we're left to kind of ask the question that you're asking, should they have gone? Certainly uh, what happens to them is, is really tragic. And obviously through the story of Ruth, God is, is moving through the situation to bring some redemption, some restoration to both Naomi, to Ruth, and to Boaz. So he's, his plan is going to prevail even in the midst of hardship and, and maybe even arguably did they disobey when they went out from israel uh i think that's a, a fair question i don't know if we can ever really have an answer there but we can certainly ponder it when we put the pieces on together of the puzzle and say hmm, should they have gone out there to moab is this a, is this a good thing or is this a not so good thing i don't know if anyone else has any thoughts out there but we could pause on that question for sure for a little bit can i there's... interject really quickly on that sure. so i believe um that because God's sovereign and he knows the beginning from the end and he knew his plan was to set up, you know, um, the kingdom for his son to come. Um, we read in Ephesians chapter two, some scriptures that show us what he was doing in this in, in chapter two, starting in verse 11, but I'm going to start in verse 14. It says he united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put together death and then skipping down now all of us can come to the father through the same holy spirit because of what christ has done for us so now you gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners you are citizens along with all of god's holy peoples you are members of god's family we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling, this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Personally, I believe in his sovereignty. He was allowing that and even motivating it so that it would come together that Jews and Gentiles were a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he came for both. You know, so I just think it's one of those things, like you said, we are, we may not know in the fullness, the answer to the question, but we can certainly see there was an intent by God to do this. And so, and this is what he did do when Jesus came to the cross. And so I believe that in looking back, you know, there were foreshadowings all through the Bible of Jesus's coming. And I think even allowing that is a foreshadowing of Jews and Gentiles coming together. I love that perspective. 
I think one of the things that Rachel said too is in looking at what God was doing with Rahab. You know, Rahab's mentioned in, in Hebrews 11, the hall of the heroes of faith. You know, and, and I like, I love that, that God includes her there. Uh, the only woman in that whole chapter she's focused on, and here, here she's in Jericho, you know, a, a city that is going to fall, and she hides, she hides the spies of Israel, lies. She displays faith in the God of Israel. And we're back to this principle going all the way back to Abraham. It's by faith that we're saved. It's by faith that we're brought in. And, and I think to Terrence's point earlier, this covenantal faithfulness that Ruth shows uh, to Naomi, she finds herself there. And, and I think that does move the heart of God. It's, it's covenantal love and faithfulness that God wrote her story in there. And so I think that has to be uh, for Rahab and for Ruth, the, and to at least my attempt at an answer at Rachel's question, why did God include Rahab and Ruth into the lineage of Jesus? And I, I think the answer is they, they put their faith in the God of Israel, and, and he chose to, to Christus point, bring them in as examples of Jew-Gentile uh, serving God's purpose together. Um, when we look at it, we can understand that, again, God will allow things to take place and still use it in alignment with what his divine plan and purpose is. How do we know that? Well, we know that Ruth was married and her and her husband were together more than a day. God is the one that opens the womb and he also keeps them closed. Ruth did not get impregnated with her first husband. If she had it, it would have been a whole different story. So you can see the hand of God in that. Same way it is with Rahab. Rahab did not come out of Jericho, a mother of one, two, three, or four. She had none. God's divine plan and purpose is always at work. But the other thing we have to realize is that Naomi and Ruth had to come out of Moab in order for the fulfillment of God's plan to be fulfilled. So we have to come out of perhaps where we should not be, or we were only there temporary to come back to where we're supposed to be. And where are they to be? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem is the fullness of God's plan and purpose revealed and done. Rachel asked the question in reference to how could Boaz marry Ruth? Well, when we look at the scripture, it says that up until the 10th generation, the Moabites were not allowed to come into the temple. What most Orthodox Jews believe is that, but what God allows to overcome his law is the law of love. That is why when the first redeemer uh, was given the opportunity by Boaz to receive Ruth, he said, absolutely not. It will destroy my heritage. In other words, mess up my family. That wasn't very loving. He said, okay, Boaz said, okay, then if you're not going to do it, I will do it. So it is the law of love superseded the law that was written. God is the God that he loves us. And he has always had a plan for Jews and Gentiles. So he's working to bring that together, like what Krista shared in Ephesians. But the bottom line is we can see the hand of God 
in the life of Ruth, just like we haven't gotten there yet, but we can see it in the book of Esther. God was already working when they were out of location in Moab, whether they went there, it doesn't say God told them to go there. It doesn't. So we can look at it and say, but we can see that it isn't until they came back to Bethlehem, the land that God had promised, the blessings to come out of, then everything is restored and they are in the lineage of Christ Jesus. Even when we look at the book of Exodus, they did not come out of Exodus, just the Hebrews. The Bible tells us that there were Gentiles, others who attached themselves to them when they came out of Egypt. God has always had a plan for the Jews and the Gentiles, and he has been actively since day one working to fulfill his plan and purpose for both. We are one, the new man in Christ Jesus. Judges chapter, I think it's chapter two. At uh, verse 18, it says, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. Then it says, the Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressed or afflicting them. Whenever a judge died, this is the part I was getting at, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their uh, abstinent ways. So where's this? I'm sorry. And in Ruth, it says at the very top of it, Ruth chapter one, it says during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. And then there's another part in judges where it talks about the people did whatever they felt was right in their own eyes. So at that time, they were, although they had the law and although they had the commands and all that type of stuff that was passed down to Moses, sometimes the people were not following it. So they would go and do as they felt that they need to do in order to survive. So I believe that that's, um, of course, God is sovereign. And as um, Pastor Sylvia said, God is the one that opens the wound and shuts the wound. So overall, the arching thing is, is that God, um, ordained it to be so, although it wasn't its uh, there, it wasn't his perfect. As I would, we would look at it and say his perfect plan. Um, uh, and the other thing in terms of dealing with um, uh, Eli, um, the, the scripture says that Eli, when it was brought to his attention that his sons was doing X, Y, and Z in the temple, the Bible says that he did not basically stop his sons from doing it. It was Eli's position to stop them or to sit them down in the way. He never stepped up to reprimand his sons um, because all the word says that all Israel, everybody was talking about this, all the different things that were happening. So it was up to Eli. Eli was in the office of the high priest. He was supposed to um, sit his children down um, and counsel them, but that didn't happen. And then in, in the end, they ended up, um, you know, they ended up perishing. And what I'll say in what, what Quincy just said is that nor do you see where Eli repented. Rachel, mm. to your point, asking, could things have turned out differently? God responds to a repentant heart and a spirit of repentance. He does. 
We haven't gotten there yet, but we see it over and over again. Eli never repented. He said, oh, well, let God do what is good in his eyes. But if he had have responded, you know, God is bringing forth this warning telling you what he's going to do. I believe because of the heart of God, God would have responded to genuine repentance. We see that. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but he says that Ahab was the most wicked of all the kings. But when Ahab repented before God, what did God do? He changed and delayed what he was going to do. Eli never repented. Eli never rebuked his sons. He never set them down. He never called them out. He talked to them gently about what they were doing. And he warned them. He said, you know, if you do something against a man, then that's one thing. But if it's from God, then who can intervene on your behalf? But he didn't tell them, look, enough is enough. I'm stripping you. I'm going to send you ABC. He did not exercise in the authority that he had been given by God. And also, my opinion, based on the way the Holy Spirit describes him, he was enjoying the delights that they were taking from the people. That's why he had put on weight. Amen. Instead of refusing to condone what they were doing and to consume what they were taking for the people in dishonorable, despicable ways, the offering of God. That's why God dealt with all three of them all in the same day. Um, I, I just want to say, uh, based on what Brother Quincy said, uh, don't forget, don't forget, uh, remember to pass down um, your teachings down to your generations. Because I think one of the things that really uh, hindered the children of Israel was them not remembering the co uh, the covenant and the uh, the uh, um, the uh, laws that God gave them, telling them not to forget. I think a lot uh, too often when they fell back into sin worse than they were before, is because they quickly forget what God had done for them. They quickly forgot when they cried out to Him, asking for help when they were under some serious oppression. So. Um, what I get from that is don't forget um, when, when you go through life, remember the points in life when God uh, 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 redeemed you, when he saved you from a situation uh, to know that maybe if you go back that same road, uh, it might yield the same results. So um, I think what are the major, major uh, uh, things that plagued uh, our brothers, our Jewish brothers was the fact that they quickly forgot, they became ungrateful. And they fell right back into sin worse than they were before. So, uh, so good, Terrence. And, you know, as we, we were talking about the, the Feast of Shavuot and how Ruth was being read at that particular time of year, the festival cycle, we've talked about it before, but you have in, the, in, a, in a given year, you, from Passover all the way through the Feast of Tabernacles, you have over and over again, to your point, Terrence, God has built in a rhythm for the very point you just made, for you to pass on the story to your children. You tell them about the Passover and the exodus out of Egypt, you know, and, and your own personal bondage to sin that Jesus has delivered you from. Uh, you know, you could talk about the, the festival of first fruits and how Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. You talk about Shavuot and, you know, the point out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Tabernacles gives us the opportunity to talk about dwelling together for, with God forever, that we're on our way to the promised land. And so all of these feasts got built in 
the opportunity. His heart was that families would do exactly what you're saying, Terrence, which is the mothers and fathers pass on to their sons and daughters the story of what God did just so that they don't forget. And I, I can't remember the exact number of times. I think it's like 244, something it's like uh, where the Lord says over 240 times, don't forget or remember, you know, and, and that's such a good reminder for us, Terrence, is, you know, that's part of what plagued Israel was the pattern of forgetting who what God did and then falling even into worse sins than previous generations. And we're no different. We're no better. We're no different than Israel. Uh, we can do the same if we're not intentional with passing on wisdom and understanding to those that are coming behind us. I like, uh, to your point, I, I, I like with Genesis uh, chapter 18, verse 17 through, I think it's 19. It says, then the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 18, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. So it goes back to the point um, that the Lord, you know, he's given us this and given us these promises, not so that we can, you know, just hold on to them for us, but so that even future generations, he wants us to pass it down to our children and for their children to pass it down to their children so that will it'll be a clear distinction between the 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 kingdom of you know light and the kingdom of darkness because we'll be walking in such a you know it'll be apparent so i think that was the other thing where although the the children of eli hoppo and phineas although they were grew up in the high priest you know under eli's tutelage um the people in the land didn't see the difference um and, you know, and ultimately it hurt them in the long run. I think also in, in these, those scriptures that are being mentioned, I see the responsibility, this great responsibility for um, disciplining our children in the ways of the Lord. You know, how serious that it really should be. And we live in such a passive culture. And just, you know, all of the generational breakdowns that we've had over rearing children these days, um, parents are accountable. You know, we're accountable for raising up our children in the way that they should go. Um, I believe that that's going to be something that we'll answer for before the Lord. Um, there's a res great responsibility there. And I just wonder, you know, how many of us really consider that, you know, consider, the, you know, the stewardship spiritual stewardship that we're giving to our kids because today you know kids are being fed in every direction television music you know just the culture is after the children and this generation in terms of saturating them with the world and the way the world thinks and um it's very easy for children to become rebellious and to not be interested in the things of god because it's all so enticing so it really does take a true concerted effort to train up children these days in godliness, but also in disciplining them when they don't, because children don't know the way they should go. And sometimes they need that, you know, they just need that correction from their parents um, to be severe even, you know, at times. So I don't know. I just believe that, 
you can see God's heart being angry, so angry because um, it was not even something he was he would forgive. You know, with Eli and Hophni and Phineas, it was permanent. Um, there was no forgiveness for what what happened there, and it was basically over him just overlooking the sins of his children, not being willing to to say something and bring the correction. Well, and that gets into you know uh, one thing we should think about. You know, Jesus talks about you know teachers it's you know if you teach one little one to sin it's better that you have a millstone thrown around your neck and be thrown into the ocean and so and and the apostles warn of you know if you want to teach uh that you desire a good thing but you're going to be held to a higher standard um and i think this is part of the calling of priests according to malachi one of the things in the in the book of malachi that the lord actually rebukes the priesthood for uh was showing partiality to the scriptures and you know, he basically says, you're, you're supposed to be a light. You're supposed to instruct the people of Israel how to walk with me, and you're not to show partiality to my word. Um, and so he's rebuking the priesthood at that point, because priests should know better, and part of their function is to both be an intercessor to God, yes, and perform the sacrifices, but they're also to have a horizontal ministry of teaching and imparting and equipping people to, uh, to walk with God properly and so Hophni and Phineas are an example of uh, a severe example, much like uh, Aaron's, you know, sons that got burned up at the, by the fire of God for burning strange fire. Um, you know, these two sons uh, were, were treating uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant very lightly. They were taking their responsibilities very lightly. They were, they were being selfish and they were, uh, they were really uh, very carnal and fleshly in how they were walking out their priestly responsibilities. And so, but you have this principle throughout the Bible that priests are called to teach. And, and that's an important responsibility that, that God is giving them. You know, the whole tribe of Levi was to equip and to teach the other 11 tribes how to walk with God. Um, and so God takes that responsibility very seriously and expected them to, uh, to take that seriously too. So all, all of that to say, Krista, I think you're 100% right. You know, we're called to be a holy nation of priests. And you, you may not be a pastor of a congregation, but if you have a family, you're called to be a priest uh, in mm. your home, for sure. I have a comment that I want to make in reference to that. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said, Jet, but I also know that in addition to that, the priests are responsible to teach. And in teaching them, they were to teach them to be distinct from all the other nations around them. When we look at from Exodus, when God <laughs> brings them out, even to current as Christians, we are not. We have been sold a bale of goods that told us that we were to conform and join with the world, act like the world, look like the world, uh, tight jeans, fog lights, and everything else to bring the, the world in instead of being distinctive and causing the world to see the difference between those that are in Christ and those that are not. And they want to obtain what we were freely given so that they can come into the light instead of out of darkness. We like the Israelites because we are no different. They did not understand the unique 
privilege, the honor that they have been given to be unique unto God as compared to the other nations that they were to draw to God through that, they decided they wanted to be just like them. That's why they wanted a king and we want it now. God mm. always intended for them to have a king, but he was going to appoint the king at his set time. And you can see that because he told Abraham he would have kings in his genealogy. So he, he already, but it was, they were demanding it, not because of anything other than, we don't want to be different from everybody else. We want to be just like them. And as Christians, it's almost like that's the same thing we're crying now. I want to be just like everybody else. But that's not what we've been called to be or how. We've been called to be different. We've been called to be set apart for Christ Jesus so that the world can see Christ in us and desire the kingdom of God. I say to all of us, when are we going to embrace that Wake up and be grateful and thankful. Praise be to God. I have been called to do this and stop compromising and being like the world instead of being like Christ. Those are my final thoughts. Thank you. Preach it. I love you, Sylvia. Pastor, um, I'm sorry. I love you too, my brother. No, the only thing I was going to add was, you know, uh, in, in Nehemiah, I think it's chap with chapter eight, it says, uh, chapter eight, verse eight, they read the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. In verse nine, Nehemiah, the governor, uh, Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. Skip down to verse 18. And it says, Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. So, but I was just making the point that the priests, you know, they read because, you know, some folks didn't understand. Most of the time, I don't even think they had, I don't believe they had their own Bibles back then. So it was really heavy on the priests to teach the people and to bring them along the way. The Bible says, um, so that the people could understand. So, um, you know, I believe, like he said earlier, you know, that's, you know, our job. We're, you know, we're, we're a kingdom of priests now. So we should be, um, as we read and spend the time with the Lord, um, we're able to share the word with people and bring clear understanding so that people know what is expected of them or what God is, is asking of them. Love it, Quincy. And that's, you're 100% right, brother. That's why we're doing this Bible study. You know, we have whole denominations right now that are teaching we don't that we don't need the Old Testament, um, <laughs> and all you need is the red letters of Jesus uh, to understand what God wants you to do. And uh, uh, Krista, Sylvia, and I, and, and and many others, obviously, but you know what you just said. We we need the whole counsel of God, and so here we are reading through from Genesis through Revelation, just creating a space so that we can. We can all talk together and process what God says, um, you know, because in today's day and age, the world, to Sylvia's point, the world is darkness. And, you know, much of the church is trying to appeal to that darkness and be conformed to the image of the world. But we're called to be transformed. The only way to be transformed is through a relationship with the Holy Spirit 
and the revelation that comes from from the God, God's word and listening and allowing his word to change us. And so I think you're 100% right, Quincy. You know, we're the call to be the priests. And so sitting down and, and giving time to this so that we can understand and begin to ask questions and grow as disciples, this is this is spiritual life. This is uh, priestly duty. This is uh, giving God space and time in our lives to, to mold us as he sees fit uh, for his good pleasure and, and for his glory. Um, I know we're coming up on uh, on our time to, together this evening. Just want to leave any any room for final thoughts or, or questions here before we close in prayer. Anyone have anything? I was just very encouraged by you um, talking about Hannah, and I was just having like tears of encouragement. I was just really touched by how you described her as an intercessor because I can deeply relate to that where I even sometimes don't understand what's coming out of my mouth mm. or like you know other people don't understand what I'm praying and knowing that God is birthing something in her like Samuel mm. I was very encouraged thank you so much praise god i had a question i know saul was from the tribe of benjamin and we know at that time judah could not come in as uh, in leadership because of the sin that had happened before the tribe of judah so i i i i wonder and i i want to understand this because i want to understand how god works like it, it marvel. It, it makes me marvel. It makes me wonder. So why, why did he allow Saul to be king at that time when the promise was meant to be for Judah? I don't know if there's a a clear answer that that scripture gives. Really, to Sylvia's point, you know, Israel's crying out for a king at the wrong time, and they're crying out for the wrong reason. And God warns them, I think, two or three times. I know He does for sure twice, saying. Uh, this is not going to end well for you. And so, you know, he does answer their prayer. I think he, he legitimately gave Saul a chance. Um, I think he was working in Saul's favor. Uh, at, at a certain point, he's working with Saul. Uh, but as Saul makes some bad choices later on, we'll read in the next next week's readings, you'll see uh, God just said Sam, to Samuel, stop praying for Saul, I'm done. And he takes the kingdom away from Saul. And so, you know, I, you know, God is working through to bring about a king after his own heart, which we know will be from the tribe of Judah and David. Uh, and so he's setting up a contrast there uh, for us to learn from. There's examples in the Bible what to do. There's examples of what not to do. And Saul, unfortunately, is going to be an example for us of what not to do. You know, why did God choose Saul uh, from the tribe of Benjamin? I think it was an answer to, to Israel's prayer. God was making a concession to something that was not his perfect will uh, at that time. He, he wanted Israel to go in a different direction, and Israel insisted uh, on a king, and God gave them what they were asking for. And unfortunately, uh, in Saul's case, it wasn't, wasn't going to be for their good, ultimately. But God used that to bring about circumstances to bring forth the king that God wanted Israel to have, who was David. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question directly, but 
Um, cause it, you know, I don't think the, the scripture is really clear as to, you know, why it was Benjamin, uh, the tribe of Benjamin or why it was, uh, Saul specifically, it just kind of gives Saul's lineage there from, from his father, Kish and the tribe of Benjamin. So, uh, and we've got to remember too, we just read about Benjamin and in, in the end of judges, they've been almost wiped out. That's uh, and maybe this gets into why Saul's got some insecurities and fear of man. You know, there, they were all nearly made extinct through the sins with the concubine and the Levites and that whole story. And so, uh, you know, maybe that gets into a little bit of what's going on in Saul's heart as, uh, you know, why he's afraid of people or, or, or dealing with some insecurities. The other thing I'd add is that, um, you know, the Bible does give us a description of what Saul looked like that he was mm -hmm. head and shoulders above everyone else. So God knows man's heart. They are demanding to have a king and they are having a wanting one now. You know, with him being head and shoulders above everyone else, they probably, because they look with their physical eyes, was like, yes, yes, all the other kings will be afraid of him. You know, if they'd have had someone, the king had have been five foot six, it might have been a different response. God is wise in all ways. And so, therefore, he's responding to the demands of the people. They're feeling like, other than those few ruffigans that the Bible says, who refused to allow Saul to be their king, but overall, they were satisfied that, yes, he's going to meet the mark, even though, as you said before, did when you started, they had to find him, you know, uh, and so he's already exuding some things that God needs to deal with him, but the people, based on the outer appearance I believe was satisfied. And we can see that even again, when things don't work out later on and God has to remind Samuel, you look from the outer, meaning mankind, but I look from the inner, amen. One last final thought on the whole Benjamin uh, angle of Saul's heritage. You know, there's quite a few naysayers that were saying, you know, they're not gonna let Saul be king basically. Even though Lord, it's, even though the Lord had said this is who is should be king, and it said you know Saul did not kind of uh, he didn't address that he kind of he didn't correct them uh, the naysayers. So I just wonder if part of that is you know again the rest of Israel is looking with disdain at Benjamin because of the sins that Benjamin had committed you know a generation or two before Saul, and he's still kind of uh, dealing with some of that reproach so to speak. Uh, and feeling inferior to the other tribes. Uh, and so he's hiding the baggage because, you know, he's dealing with some of that reproach potentially. So God works with broken human beings. Praise God. He's working in us, through us, for his glory. Uh, he's inviting us to co-labor like Hannah. He's working with us to, to show us examples of what to do, what not to do. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas on one hand, but we've got Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Samuel on the other, amazing stories that we're engaging in. And they're so rich. You know, we could spend the whole week talking about these stories and we would find there's still nuggets that would be coming out as we share this. So um, I think it's really encouraging to share this time together. Krista, I just turn it over to you to, to close us out unless you have some final thoughts. This has been wonderful as usual. Um, just uh, going through God's word and and gleaning from it, from each one of, of you that have shared 
you know, um, the Holy Spirit is at work. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you so much for inviting us here tonight to come and be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to meditate upon your word, to talk it over, to wait on you and to, to hear from others that you've already been speaking to. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the impartation of your word. We pray, Lord, that you will produce within each of us, Father, all that you've intended by this word that's been planted tonight. And as we continue to read through it, Father, I pray that you'll give us revelation, knowledge, and understanding, Lord. Take us to deeper places in the way that we look at your story and what you're doing so that we truly can understand your heart. That's what we're longing for, Lord. We're longing for just a deeper place of um, intimacy and fellowship with you, Lord. We want to know you. We love you. And we thank you, Lord, for um, being with us. We thank you for being in our midst. And Father, I just pray that um, as each of us depart from, from this online gathering, Lord, that, uh, that you would go with everyone, Lord, that you would give peace, your shalom peace, that you would protect your people, Father, and that you would continue to help us to be about your business in our day-to-day -day lives, Lord, in the places you've appointed each one of us, which is all so different, Lord. But as Pastor Sylvia and Jed and so many others have said tonight, Lord, you've called us to be different from the world. So wherever you've appointed us, Lord, help us to have the courage and the boldness, Lord, to stand on truth, to stand for truth, and to not desire the things of this world, Lord, but to set our heart and our hope on, on what is above, on things to come, on our heavenly home, and on the things you've instructed us to do in your word, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would grab on to these truths because you've told the, us that it is our life, Lord. You've said that we need to get wisdom. And so, Father, I pray that, that wisdom would be bound around our, our necks, placed upon our foreheads, Father, wrapped around our hearts, that we would learn and not just be hearers of this word, Lord, but be doers also. So, Father, I thank you for this time, and we pray in advance for our next Monday night, Lord. I pray that you would just continue um, to teach us, Lord, in your word as you lead each of us by your spirit through the week in our readings individually. And bring us safely back together in the mighty and glorious name of our Lord, our Savior, and our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.